Well, good morning, and I guess Happy New Year once again. Well, this morning we're wrapping up the short sermon series that was started, I guess, just after Thanksgiving. Jeff started on the unfolding mystery. Last week, Jeff looked at, uh, or we looked together with Jeff at Colossians 1. Uh, and today we're looking, closing up the series, looking at Acts 17, 16 through 34, entitling this along with uh, sort of the, the trend that the sermons have taken over the last month or so. This is the mystery proclaimed. Last week was the mystery fulfilled. This week is the mystery proclaimed. Next week, Jeff will be back with us and we'll be resuming in Mark for the foreseeable future. But for now, uh, would you turn with me to Acts 17, 16 through 34? Before we read from the text, let me pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this opportunity to hear and proclaim the word of God. We ask that you would go forth into our hearts and do a work in us as we hear the message proclaimed, that you would convict those of us that need convicting, that you would encourage those of us that need encouraged, that we would walk away knowing that you are the living God who meets with us, who engages with us in and through the inerrant, infallible word of God. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, Acts 17, 16 through 34, I will be reading from the ESV. <clears throat> now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on, the, and on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, 
we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of our God. Now, one of the things that I often enjoy doing is exploring new cities. Um, I've often driven Lori, my wife, pretty crazy when we go to a new city because while she likes to have a definitive plan for what she does, she likes to have an objective and a target and go there, I sort of like to wander around aimlessly, sort of meandering the city, observing all of the different sights and sounds. Now, Lori says that's because that I don't like asking for directions, uh, but I would contest that assertion. I just like taking in all of the sights and the sounds, and I love the journey more than the destination, at least as it pertains to visiting new cities. Well, when we read this opening verse of our passage this morning in verse 16, I like to think that the Apostle Paul is like me. Well, maybe not. But it's clear that as he undertakes this journey around Athens, presumably a new city to him, he has his eyes open to all of the sights and the sounds. Perhaps he sees the grand architecture. If you've ever been to Athens or seen pictures of Athens, just beautiful architecture. Perhaps he sees the architecture of the Parthenon in his myths. Or maybe he, he smells the, the, the smells, the good smells emanating from the Agora or the marketplace that surely would have been emanating from there. But what Luke tells us about Paul's journey is surprising because in the world capital of philosophy and culture, a place that I admit I would be stupid with excitement to visit, we find that Paul isn't enamored with the grand architecture, nor is he stupefied for, by the philosophical giants that probably tread in his midst who, are, who walk the same roads that he's now walking upon, people like Aristotle and Plato. He's not stupefied by any of that. Rather, Paul, we find, is wearing a different set of spectacles, a set of spectacles that allows him to see the city of Athens from a different perspective, a different angle. And what we see, what he sees, is a city that's absolutely lost. It's a city that for all of its culture, all of its architecture, all of its history, it's a city that's steeped in idols. It's full of them. Luke tells us that as Paul takes in all the sights and sounds from this angle, that his spirit was provoked within him. Paul was incredibly burdened by what he saw. In fact, the Greek behind this term, paraxuno, communicates something like this restless inner turmoil that's sort of boiling up within him as he observes all of these things. These idols apparently disturbed Paul in some pretty significant ways. And as we'll see in this rest, in the rest of this passage, as we continue to work through it, this being disturbed by all of these idols will eventually propel Paul outward to proclaim the message of the gospel. And we'll get to that component in a few minutes. But for now, I think that this opening verse of this passage, simply just reading verse 16, challenges us all, challenges all of us right off the bat by leading us to ask a couple of diagnostic questions about ourselves. First, like Paul, do we ever walk around engaging the various spheres of life that we find ourselves in, wearing a set of spectacles like Paul has on? And second, if we do, if we do walk around in our various spheres of life, seeing them for what they are, seeing the the idolatry that very often we find our culture steeped in, do these cultural idols that we see and confront, whatever they might be, do they affect us in the same way that they clearly affect Paul in this passage? 
You see, I think if you're anything like me, I think we go around life assuming that many of the cultural norms or expressions that we're steeped in, whatever they might be, are religiously neutral, when in fact, they're absolutely not. Very often, I think that we, we go through life almost in the same way in which we drive our cars. Let me explain what I mean by that. What I mean is, have you ever gotten in your car to go to a certain destination, a, a, a common destination that you always go to, whether it be work or school or church or family or friends, just a place that you always go to. And you hop in your car, you turn on the engine, you blink, and then before you know it, you're there. And you sort of wonder, wait, how did I get here? Did I run any red lights? What, what exactly happened? And the point behind that is when we're steeped in the same route over and over again as we drive our cars, very often it becomes so automatic, so second nature, that we don't even think about it anymore. And so our minds can sort of wander to various other things as we make our journey to these common places we go. Well, I wonder if sometimes that is a metaphor for how we engage the various spheres of life that we find ourselves in. Have we been so steeped in cultural expressions that are completely antithetical to the gospel without even realizing it? And are we functionally worshiping other things when our confession and what we say we believe and what we say who we say we worship is the one true God? Are we in fact maybe worshiping other things along the way? Well, in this way, this opening verse challenges us to consider whether or not we have our eyes open, whether or not we have on that pair of spectacles that Paul clearly has on in this passage. And it challenges us, it challenges our worship in that way. And so what I want us to dissect as we walk through this passage today is I want us to talk a little bit about worship. And I want us to see three things about worship. I want us to see the reality of worship, the reality that each and every one of us are being summoned each and every day to worship something. I want us to see how Paul then moves to challenge us to recalibrate our worship, to meet the reality that we worship something every single day, and then to recalibrate that thing, whatever those things are around the gospel, so that the one true God really is the one that we're worshiping. And then three, this passage challenges our worship It challenges us to display our worship, to proclaim what we believe, almost like Paul does here in the Areopagus. And we'll get to each of those points in due turn. But first, let's consider further the reality of worship. And very simply, what we find pregnant throughout this passage is the reality that everybody worships something. Commentators note, like I said at the outset, that verse 16 sort of functions as a heading or a summary for what follows in this passage. It sets the scene for the context and what's before us. So we learn immediately at the outset that, idol, that idols are everywhere. They're everywhere in Athens, and they underlie the belief system of these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who Paul encounters right off the bat. Now, without getting into all of the details about these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and spending time talking about exactly what they believed, a good way of just briefly summarizing their positions would be to say that the Epicureans are maybe analogous or equivalent to what we would consider today as an agnostic secularist and that a Stoic would be somebody uh, analogous to what we would consider somebody holding to a New Age belief system. So we have Paul encountering these agnostic secularists, 
and Paul encountering these New Age people. Uh, sort of different, I mean, completely opposite spectrums in one sense, and we'll talk about that in a second. You see, the Epicureans, for these Epicureans, the gods were thought to be so distant, so uninvolved in the lives of humans and the processes of the world and nature and so forth, that as a result, the ethics for an Epicurean were simply to go about and live your life seeking pleasure and tranquility in the present, because that's really all that we have to live for, according to the Epicurean belief system. But the Stoics, on the other hand, the gods weren't so far off and removed from them. The gods were basically in everything. It's a form of pantheism, if you, know, if you understand what that word means. It's the gods sort of are infused in every single thing in our life. Everything is almost God. And as a result, the ethical aim for a Stoic was to live a life designated to fate. The Epicureans and Stoics were two of the most prominent philosophical schools of the day, so it wouldn't have been uncommon for somebody like Paul to engage with these two philosophical thoughts and these schools. And yet, when Paul arrives in the Areopagus in verse 22, when he begins his speech, what we find is that Paul doesn't, he doesn't compliment them on their reputation as being two prominent philosophical schools. He doesn't praise them for their intellect Surely they were smart individuals, but he doesn't praise them for that. Rather, what does he do? He compliments them for being very religious. Hmm. The philosophical schools he encounters, and that's not just the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. At this point in the Areopagus, he's encountering a whole host of philosophical schools. The philosophical schools he encounters are, in fact, so religious that they've created an idol to an unknown god. Even the Epicureans, who, like we said at the outset, were close to what we would consider agnostic secularists or deists, they were still a deeply religious group of people who bowed down at the altar of a particular vision or idea of what the ideal human life was. You see, worship is happening everywhere in Athens. Worship is absolutely infusing every aspect of culture and life in Athens. Maybe not in the formal sense that we, as Christians, think of worship. Worship simply means ascribing worth to something. So whatever we ultimately ascribe worth to, that is what we're functionally worshiping. And as Paul continues his speech in the Areopagus, he gets right to the heart of this reality that everybody is worshiping something. In verses 26 and 27, so in the midst of Paul's speech, as he's in the Areopagus, and now he has his opportunity to proclaim to the peoples of the Areopagus. In verses 26 and 27, we find that Paul is essentially going back to Adam, and he makes the point that every person has a natural inclination to seek God. In other words, every person has a natural inclination to worship We might say that it's in our DNA as human beings. To be human beings is to be creatures of worship through and through. But without divine revelation, as Paul will make his point as he continues in this speech, without divine revelation, the best that we can hope for as humanity is a mere groping in the darkness, meeting this natural impulse for worship with false gods or idols who are ultimately never going to satisfy For the intellectual reputation and heritage surrounding these Greek philosophical schools, really Paul's point in this Areopagus is they're all idol worshipers, essentially. That's what it boils down to. We either worship the one true God or we're worshiping an idol. There's no in-between space there. And friends, unless we're 
worshiping the one true God. Unless he's the one who's at the center of our lives, we too are settling for idols. Even if we call Christ Lord and the Spirit of God has impressed upon divine revelation on our hearts and in our lives, even we still need to constantly check ourselves to see if we are in fact functionally worshiping idols as we go about our lives and our spheres of life wherever we find ourselves or if we're worshiping the one true God. And I think, in fact, that if we really pause to reflect upon the desires of our hearts and we're honest with ourselves, I think very often, friends, you and I would find that we too settle quite often for idols over against the one true God. Jamie Smith is a Christian philosopher. Jeff quoted him last week, and I'm indebted to this man as well, so I'm going to refer to him again right now. Jamie Smith is a Christian philosopher who's written at length about this idea that the reality uh, of that the reality of deeply religious messages are embedded everywhere, virtually everywhere in our culture. And very often, we assume these very religious messages through the practices and habits we form without ever pausing to evaluate the messages that we're assuming. Now, in one chapter of his book, You Are What You Love, which Jeff recommended that book last week, and I'll continue with the recommendation this week. It's a good book, You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. He proposes the uncomfortable reality that we might not really love what we think we really love. In other words, Jamie Smith says that our habits, our desires, or our loves are very often influenced, guided, or propelled so much more by the practices and rituals that we're steeped in than we probably even realize. And as a result, if we never stop to consider the pervasity that religious messages are absolutely everywhere and that we encounter them daily in seemingly innocuous corners of society, if we never stop to face that reality then very quickly, we too will succumb to that. We too will be people that ultimately, even though we confess worship of the one true God, very often through the habits that we form and the practices that we assume, ultimately we settle for functionally worshiping idols. Smith illustrates, and I've probably used this illustration from him in the past, he illustrates this dynamic by giving us the example of a shopping mall. He tells this story that one day his son came to him and said, Dad, can you drive me to the temple? And very quickly, Smith tells us that he knew what his son was asking because in a recent discussion, Smith tells us, he tried to impress upon his son that the shopping mall was actually one of the most religious sites in town. Now, the mall, the mall is just one silly illustration that we could use among a whole host of other illustrations. But the mall, Smith Smith gives this elaborate illustration about the mall is, a, is an entity that's trying to form us into a people that find their identity in consumption, not by what it explicitly says necessarily, but by the images it portrays, and even by the very architecture that the mall is steeped in. It's steeped in a very, it's giving us a very religious message under the hood, we might say. Now, I won't go into Smith's entire illustration. It's elaborate, and it's intended in some senses to be somewhat humorous. But the point is that the mall, like any other thing we could say in our society, is a subtle but serious religious institution. So whether or not you're here this morning as a Christian, whether or not you call Christ Lord, or whether you're not sure about this whole Christianity thing, do you at least first recognize the reality that everybody worships something. To be human is to worship. It's in our DNA to do so. 
So the question then becomes, what are we functionally worshiping? What are we finding purpose in? What are we ultimately finding purpose in? At least functionally speaking, it might not be the things always that we overtly confess that we find meaning in. And that's a scary thought, but it's one that I think we need to continue continuously and repeatedly ask ourselves as Christians. Those things, what are those things that we ascribe ultimate worth and ultimate value to? What is functionally doing a really good job of shaping us right now without even realizing it? Well, this leads to our second point. Second, this text and Paul challenges us to recalibrate our worship. You see, in light of the inevitability of worship that Paul discusses and that I just laid out for us, Paul's speech in the Areopagus challenges the various philosophical schools in his midst, as well as you and I, to constantly make it our habit of recentering and saturating ourselves in a better message. And what exactly is this better message that Paul announces? Well, very simply, it's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message that in Jesus Christ, God has begun his new creation program. You see, Paul begins with creation in his speech in the Areopagus. He begins by announcing that creation had a definitive starting point and that God that created the world and everything in it. Now this, right away, Paul's understanding of creation goes against the philosophical schools he's encountering because for them, This whole creation thing was chance. It just happened that it would happen this way. But Paul announces something different. He announces the God of the universe was the one who created. The God of the universe was the one that laid the foundations of the world. The God of the universe gives us purpose and meaning and hope, something that the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and the other philosophical schools in the Areopagus could not account for, even as they were trying to give this, these philosophical uh, understandings, they couldn't account for true meaning and value of the human being because they couldn't account for a God who personally was involved in the creation of all things. Furthermore, this isn't a God who created and is now aloof as if he's an absentee landlord. This is a God, Paul tells us in the scripture, that he's a God who created everything in it. He created all things out of nothing, and he remains the Lord over all things. He's the one who gives breath and who continues to give breath to all peoples. Out of this doctrine of creation, then Paul moves almost seamlessly to the human condition. He alludes back in verse 25 to Adam before getting to the problem that because of the fall, our loves and the object of our worship are often distorted, and that the best we can do, apart from God revealing himself to us, is this sort of groping in the darkness. And that's the image that's evoked here in verse 27 when Paul says that uh, they should seek their way to, they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. The idea there is that apart from divine revelation, the best that we can hope for is sort of wandering in the darkness, trying to feel for God, but ultimately it's a futile effort because we're not going to find him apart from God revealing himself to us. But Paul announces the good news, that God is actually not far from us. He's not far from the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And the idea there isn't that these Epicurean, Stoic philosophers and others in the Areopagus have simply found an other way to God. It's not that they found an other way up the mountain that's a valid and true way of finding God. That's not what Paul is saying here. Rather, he's saying that even as the Athenians don't know God or acknowledge him as such, They're still dependent on him from start to finish in the common grace they all enjoy. 
And as such, even these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers are without excuse. And that sort of harkens back to Romans 1 and what Paul will say in a more expansive way in one of his other, in one of his epistles that he writes in the very beginning of the epistle of the Romans. But even better than that, even better than the fact that every human being is reliant on common grace and therefore we're all near to God in some sense, even better than that, Paul announces that God is indeed not far off because he's revealed himself in Jesus Christ through the resurrection. You see, the Greek philosophers thought the life of philosophy was the good life. That was the way ultimately to flourish, according to Greek philosophy. Socrates, the famous Greek philosopher, once said that the unexamined life is not a life worth living. But Paul implicitly presses up against this narrative by giving a better narrative and a better version of human flourishing that has Jesus Christ and the resurrection at the center of it. And it's only in that better narrative do we have hope, friends. This is a narrative that certainly isn't new. What I've just outlined and what Paul says here, I'm sure it's something that we've all heard a bajillion times. It's not something that's new. In the basic elements, you and I are certainly very familiar with it. But it's a narrative, friends, that we need to continue time and time again of making a practice of saturating ourselves in and especially of drawing upon it time and time again to see its many and multifaceted implications for our lives as believers in Christ. Recently, I've been watching a show, actually just finished the show, a show called Man in the High Castle. If anybody's ever seen it, I think it's an Amazon uh, original series. Uh, but the show, and this does have relevance, so even though I'm transitioning, don't worry, I'll get to the point. The show is, uh, is set in the 1960s, and it's centered around the hypothetical premise that America lost World War II. And as a result, America is essentially separated in two. You know, the allies, the premise is the allies lost World War II. So America is separated in two, with uh, the Rocky Mountains to the East Coast being the greater Third Reich, scary thought, and the Rockies to the Pacific being the Japanese Pacific states. And both, both, uh, of, both empires are ruling essentially over what was once the Americas. Uh, both areas are being ruled by dictators, but also both areas have and assume their unique identity. They have a very unique identity. The Japanese Pacific states, we find as, we, uh, as the series is sort of launched into it, we find that the Japanese Pacific states is a very overtly violent place to live where the former Americans who live there live in this uneasy tension with their Japanese overlords. These, these uh, former Americans who live in the Japanese Pacific states are trying to cling to their culture as much as they can, and as a result, they regularly clash with their Japanese overlords who rule over them. I can, I can, you can just picture the scene, right, of having two different cultures just clashing together uh, with the Japanese overlords constantly oppressing the former Americans. But the situation in the greater Third Reich is far different. In that society, there is virtual ethnic and religious hegemony. Everybody is basically white and atheist. There's, universal, uh, there's a universal uh, ethic, we might say, in the Greater Third Reich. And even though the Greater Third Reich, as you get into the series, you see it compared with the Japanese Pacific states, the Greater Third Reich is a very clean place to live, a very economically prosperous place to live. What we find is it's driven by this massive propaganda machine. 
In one episode later in the series, we find that one of the main characters, Juliana, who's been living in the Japanese Pacific states in this overtly oppressive place, she's forced to flee for a number of reasons, and she essentially takes asylum in the greater Third Reich. And as she's thrust into this propaganda machine, this propaganda machine that uh, gives this uh, facade of being a very clean, economically prosperous place to live, and it seems like everybody else she encounters has kind of drunk the Kool-Aid of that, where they're, they're, uh, they're just so used to it now, they're so steeped in it that everything's just normal. But as Juliana is thrust from one culture into another culture, we find that in fact the Greater Third Reich is an absolutely terrifying place to live. And we see that world then through her own eyes. Uh, the very, at the very start, when she first enters the Greater Third Reich, she's forced to undergo a medical exam just to make sure that she's going to be able to bear children, to make sure that she doesn't have any Jewish lineage in her family. It's an absolutely terrifying place to live. The point is that it's only after Juliana is thrust into this cultural narrative from a completely different cultural narrative do problems explicitly come to light? And friends, the only way that you and I are going to have our eyes open to the cultural narrative and the cultural idols that we're so often steeped in is if we're already coming to terms with the gospel. If The only way we're going to be able to understand and critique the narrative that we're living in is to s- surround ourselves and to saturate ourselves with a greater narrative, and that is the narrative of the gospel you know, I like one at uh, a few months ago, I was listening to a very prominent New Testament scholar giving advice to potential PhD students in New Testament. And his advice was, was shocking. The question that was raised was, you know, what's the best thing as a PhD in New Testament can we do to prepare ourselves for the field? And this scholar said, don't read that book or don't read this book. He said, you have to absolutely immerse yourself in the scriptures more than you ever thought possible. You have to make them almost second nature and absorb them every single day, reading them through and through, and then reading them again through and through. And even though this scholar was giving that advice to PhD students, friends, that's got to be our approach too. Are we saturating ourselves in a better narrative than the narratives that we so often assume? That's what it means to recalibrate our worship. It means saturating ourselves in the word of God. It means peering into the depths of a greater narrative with a more worthy object of our loves at the center of it. It means confronting all things, all spheres of life with the word of God and with the gospel narrative. Now, I know Jeff and I have quoted this man in the past, but I'm going to quote him again because I think Abraham Kuyper is so helpful here, the Dutch spokesman and, or statesman and uh, theologian. He says that there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who was sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And the point is that there is no sphere of life, no sphere of human existence, which is religiously neutral. And as a result, we have to continue asking ourselves the question, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ speak into this sphere, whatever sphere we find ourselves in? How does it speak into politics, or how does it speak into work, or how does it speak into education, and so forth? And although we might arrive at different conclusions for all of those things, and that's okay, that's okay to do, are we at least saturating ourselves with the gospel and with the word of God so that we can begin to see how it speaks into everything, even those subliminal messages we might say that we so often just assume right off the bat. 
This is a challenge of recalibrating our worship. And this leads to our final point. Third, this text challenges us to display our worship. In other words, Paul's confrontation with the idols of Athens, with the peoples and the Areopagus and the Greek philosophical schools he encounters, his presentation challenges us in a number of ways. First, I think if we're honest with ourselves, doing what Paul's doing here as Christians, even, a much, even in a much more moderated context, because I don't think a lot of us really have the platform that Paul has here, but even thinking about doing something of what Paul does here in a much more moderated context is absolutely terrifying, isn't it? It's one thing to agree that everybody worships something, that very often the objects of our worship, at least functionally speaking, are something other than what we profess, and that we all need to regularly calibrate and recalibrate our worship. But it's another thing to take this gospel of Jesus Christ and to speak it into the chaos, to speak it into a world where idols are all over the place. Nevertheless, while this text challenges us in that way, it challenges us to engage the world, I think that by peering into Paul's strategy in this text can be quite helpful as we navigate what it looks like to take up this daunting task of proclaiming the gospel, of proclaiming what we worship. And so let's look at a few points from this text. Specifically, I want to focus on Paul's strategy. And just a couple points real quick to close this out. First, what we find is that throughout Paul's speech, we see a man who clearly understands the people he's engaging. You see, a speech in the Areopagus looks different from other speeches in Acts. If you've ever read through Acts, you'll notice that most often Paul is engaging other Jewish people or he's engaging Samaritans. But we find that the message he proclaims here, it's the same gospel message, but it has a different feel to it because he's proclaiming it to a different type of people. He's not in the synagogue. He's not even among Gentile God-fearers. He's engaging a culture, cultural current that has so little grounding in what he's saying that they call him a babbler. But when Paul gets into the Areopagus, we see that he is a man who's uniquely able to contextualize what he proclaims because he listens. And he takes time to actively observe the current belief in Athens. And apparently he's also a well-read man, quoting even from their own poets, the text tells us. Yet at the same time, Paul clearly contextualizes the gospel. He clearly has a firm grasp on what the cultural climate is. He's also a man who doesn't compromise the message. In fact, it's interesting that Paul, commentators will point this out, it's interesting that Paul focuses on the centrality of the resurrection throughout this narrative because the resurrection wasn't an accepted category really in Greek thought. But as we know, without the resurrection, there really is no gospel, is there? Doesn't Paul get that in 1 Corinthians 15? If there is no resurrection, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is futile, right? So in this sense, even though Paul contextualizes the gospel, he doesn't compromise or water down what's central to the gospel message itself. So what gives Paul the freedom to do that? What gives Paul the freedom to proclaim the unadulterated message of the gospel without compromise? Well, in short, I think it's because of his deeply rooted belief in the sovereignty of God. You see, the same sovereign God who Paul proclaims in the Areopagus, the same sovereign God who is ruling and reigning in the heavens, who has all things in his hands, so to speak, the same sovereign God who laid the foundations of the earth is the same sovereign God 
who empowers Paul to proclaim what he does and in the way he does. You see, this is a message Paul is proclaiming that he doesn't just know in order to proclaim. This is a message he proclaims because he believes it deep down in his bones. This is a message that Paul has been saturated in time and time again throughout his whole ministry thus far. And it's this message that he not only proclaims, but that empowers him to proclaim as well. And then second observation on Paul's strategy. Paul engages the people of the Areopagus with charity and level-headedness. We noted at the outset in verse 16 when uh, Luke gives us this commentary that Paul's spirit was provoked within him. You see, the Greek word behind this communicates something, like I said, a restless inner turmoil, perhaps even bordering on irritation or anger. And yet, When Paul arrives in the Areopagus, his tone is clear and honest, but it's also incredibly charitable, too. I like what New Testament commentator Daryl Bach says about the implications of this exchange by way of application. Daryl Bach writes this. He says, sometimes we Christians are so angry at the state of our society that all that comes through is the anger and not love that we are to have for our neighbor in need. Those who see this anger and want to represent the faith differently, can overreact the other way, almost pretending as if there's no idolatry, and as long as the religious search is sincerely motivated. But Paul avoids both of these extremes. He knows how to confront, but does so honestly and graciously. Both message and tone are important in sharing the gospel, and here Paul is an example of both. I think that's so insightful. Because, well, you see, what we find in this passage is a man who is truly worth imitating as we consider what it looks like to take up this daunting task of proclaiming or declaring our worship. Paul's an example of charity, an example of love and contextualization, but all without compromise. Simply put, he's a man who has met Jesus Christ, and that changes everything about what he does and what he says. So when we reflect back on what Paul observes, what he proclaims, and how he does it all, it's certainly a challenge, I think, for you and I. But it's a challenge, lest we never forget, that's underwritten by the sovereign God over the entire universe, who loves us, loves his people more than we ever dared hope for in Jesus Christ, and who reminds us in this passage of the resurrection life and the program of restoration that we, as God's people, are taking part of because of the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Almighty God, we thank you for this uh, time. We thank you for opening up your word to us and revealing it to us. And ask that as we leave here, we wouldn't just get in our cars and drive off and think about our lunch plans, but that we would really think about the cultural messages and the, uh, the cultural idols that we so often assume without even thinking twice about them. Lord, would you confront us by your spirit in this passage to consider those practices or those habits we've simply taken up without uh, directing them or critiquing them in light of the gospel narrative? And what we leave here as men and women, boys and girls, who desire in, in our bones to saturate ourselves with a better message, with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.